that many people in our nation who are celebrating would remain humble and that many in our nation who are concerned or even fearful would find confidence and find hope and find joy in Christ, regardless of what kind of concerns they might have. And of course, we'll pray for our church that our church, which is full of people who don't see eye to eye on everything, but we do see eye to eye on Christ, would stay united. That those of us who are upset would not look to those who are happy with some kind of anger or bitterness, and that those of us who are happy would not look down upon those who are upset or disappointed with the results of this past week. So we will certainly pray for our current leaders, our outgoing leaders, pray for each other, and pray for our nation as well. But we also want to spend some time in the book of Jude. Last week, we started a sermon series in the book of Jude. And while the book of Jude starts out fairly normal, it starts out courteous, upbeat, and encouraging, the book of Jude does not stay that way for long. That's because Jude has an urgent warning to share with the Christians reading his letter. The problem is that false teachers have infiltrated the church. These false teachers are perverting the grace of God for the sake of their own sinful desires. Jude specifically says their sensuality. And by doing this, Jude accuses them of denying Jesus as master and Lord. And that is a heavy accusation indeed. So what exactly is Jude's guidance to these Christians reading the letter? What does he expect them to do in response to this danger of false teaching? Well, Jude expects them to contend for the faith. He makes it clear that every single one of these believers has been enlisted in a battle. And the same false teaching, that same danger, that same threat exists today. And because of that, the same challenge remains for believers today. Because there's still false teaching going around, we too must contend for the faith. We must contend for the faith when it's difficult, when it's costly, and even in those moments where it can be agonizing. And in a world where that is getting further and further away from the truth of the Christian faith, make no mistake about it, we will be tempted to give up this fight at moments. We will be tempted to stop contending for the faith. We will be tempted to simply go with the flow. We'll be tempted to tell ourselves that there's no fight to be had, no contending to be done. We'd rather just bury our heads in the sand. Maybe we do this to avoid confrontation. Maybe we don't contend because we feel inadequate. But regardless of what the temptation might be, regardless of what our reasons might be, we must resist the temptation to not contend for the faith. We must recognize and stand up to false teaching. Within our churches. But make no mistake, this battle, this contending for the faith, cannot be won on our own strength. It cannot be fought by our own skill, our own ability, our own knowledge. We absolutely must rely on God to strengthen us in this battle. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us. We need the Bible to teach us. We need the church to encourage us. We need all of this if we're going to contend for the faith, that faith that Jesus established through his broken body and his shed blood, the faith we just celebrated at communion, the faith that has been passed down to every single person who believes in him as Savior, Master and Lord. 
we must continue fighting. Now, as we mentioned last week, if we're going to spot false teaching and avoid being led astray by those who spread it, we need to take very seriously the calling we have to know the faith we hold, to understand the faith that we profess. But then on top of knowing our faith, we also need to know false teaching. We talked about what that false teaching looked like last week. Again, perverting the grace of God for the sake of sensuality. We need to be able to spot that. We need to be able to recognize that. But how do we actually spot and recognize the teachers themselves? Not just the teaching, but the teacher. Jude tells us more about that today. So open to Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in the verse book of Jude. I knew I was going to do that at some point in the sermon series. There are no chapters. There's only 25 verses. And all week as I'm preparing sermons, I keep saying chapter 1. Ah, oh, there is no chapter 1. It's just verses. Jude verse 5. Only verse 5 in the entire book because there's only one chapter. Jude verse 5. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide as well. But before we do any further reading... Let's pray together as a church, keeping in mind all the things we mentioned a few moments ago. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the book of Jude. I pray that you would help us to recognize false teaching, that we would avoid it, that we would recognize it when we see it, that we would speak up when we see people who are spreading false teaching, that we would speak up when we see Friends, brothers, sisters in Christ who are falling into false teaching, that we wouldn't be too hesitant, that we wouldn't be too shy to say something because we love them and we care about them and we want your truth to be proclaimed. So, Father, be with us as we read the book of Jude this morning. I pray that you would give us humble hearts, that you would allow us to be convicted where we need to be convicted, that you would simply let your word do what your word is meant to do, which is to shape us and Form us and change our thinking and, as a result, change our living as well. Father, we pray for all of our leaders. Again, it's been an eventful week, a week where some people are singing from the rooftops and some people are hunkering down for the worst. And regardless of where we are, God, I pray that we would find our confidence in you. I pray that you'd be with our leaders who are leaving positions of authority. Thank you for the service they've offered, the good things that they've done. Father, be with the leaders who are going into positions of authority, especially our new president. I pray that those people would enter into those offices and enter into those roles with an incredible sense of reverence, an incredible sense of humility, a recognition of justice, and also a recognition that our leaders will answer to you for how they conduct themselves and for how they lead and for how they fulfill their roles and fulfill their responsibilities. So watch over those leaders, keep them safe, keep them healthy, keep them strong, give them good judgment, and I pray that they would lead our nation well. And Father, be with those of us who are disappointed. Again, we pray that we would not be burdened with despair, that we would not panic when panic may not be necessary. But I also pray that we would not be overjoyed, that we would have level heads, that we would understand that no human leader brings salvation, that no human leader ushers in your kingdom. There are things that only you can do. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be sober-minded about our leaders. And I pray for our church. 
again, many of us presumably voted in different ways, voted for different people, have different opinions, have different concerns, have different needs. And I pray that this election would not be the kind of thing that were to divide us in any way. We know that there are so many things that divide churches and divide Christians, and politics is often one of them. But I pray that that would not happen here, that we would continue to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how we differ and regardless of how the world works around us. So, Father, be with our leaders, be with us this morning. I pray that we would look to you as our shepherd, our king, our ruler, above every other shepherd and king and ruler that this world offers us. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Jude, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Quick side note. Verse 5 is really interesting. Because Jude says that Jesus is the one who led the Israelites out of Egypt. And you might read that and think, wait a minute, Jesus did that? I mean, I didn't think Jesus was really on the scene yet. That's way before the New Testament, right? Well, maybe this gets at one of the core Christian teachings of the eternity of Jesus. That idea is that Jesus is not a created being. There has never been a point where Jesus did not exist. There may have been a point where Jesus did not exist in incarnation bodily form, but Jesus has always been. He has always existed with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So in that sense, yes, Jesus is involved way back when the Israelites are led out of the wilderness. But verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. As Jude begins this task of exposing the false teachers, these people who have crept in unnoticed, he compares them to three stories that his audience would have known very well. The first story is from Numbers chapters 13 and 14, specifically the Israelites in the wilderness. Because after God freed the Israelites from Egypt, they began making their way to the promised land under Moses' leadership. And when they got there, God told the Israelites to send spies in to scope things out. But when the spies came back, they reported that as wonderful as the land was, Even though, yes, it is flowing with milk and honey the way God said it would be, there's also a big problem. The people who live in this land are huge. Their defense is strong. We cannot possibly defeat these people. So as a result, the spies insisted that they should not attempt to enter the land. That would be a death wish. Now, what's sad is that they make this request. They make this suggestion to turn around, go home. It's not militarily prudent for us to try and fight these people. They make this suggestion in spite of everything they just witnessed from God in Egypt. They witnessed God take down the most powerful empire in the world right before their very eyes. And yet, as they look into the promised land, 
They don't believe that God can come through. They don't trust God's power to deliver them, save them again. There were two spies who did trust in God's power. And there was Moses and there was Aaron. But the rest of that generation didn't believe. That's story number one. Story number two, the fallen angels. Maybe you've heard the story before that Satan and the rest of his demons were once angels. They were once glorifying and serving God. But then they forgot their place and they pushed back against God. The Israelites in the wilderness is an example of unbelief. But the fallen angels is an example of rebellion. And then story number three, Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Jude says that those people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Now, that certainly goes against the argument that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was just a lack of hospitality. It wasn't really about any type of desire. It wasn't really any type of sexual immorality. It was just about power or control or dominance over others. That's not what Jude says. Jude says unnatural desire. It goes along with what he said in verse 4 about sensuality. So if the example of the Israelites was the sin of unbelief, and the example of the fallen angels was the sin of rebellion, then the example of Sodom and Gomorrah is the sin of wickedness. Now, why does Jude bring up these three different stories? These three different examples. What do they all have in common? It is a good question to ask. Well, in all three examples, in all three stories, these people were punished by God. The Israelites who didn't believe in God's power didn't get to enter the promised land. The two spies who did believe, they got to enter. The angels who rebelled against God were punished. Jude says, eternal chains and gloomy darkness. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were punished too. Jude describes eternal fire. Now that all sounds scary, doesn't it? Sins being punished, judgment from God. But what's even more frightening here is that Jude is teaching that the false teachers who have crept into the church, these certain people he wrote to warn them about, Jude says they are guilty of the exact same sins. Pick up in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, referring to the false teachers, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said... The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, the false teachers simply don't believe God's words. They don't believe that he can be trusted. They'd rather follow their own visions. They'd rather follow their own dreams. It's the sin of unbelief. Like those in Sodom and Gomorrah, these false teachers defile their own flesh. The sin of wickedness. 
And like the fallen angels who forgot their proper place of submission to God, these false teachers reject God's authority over them. Any kind of authority over them. It's the sin of rebellion. And there's that interesting reference in verse 9. It comes from a writing outside of the Bible that Jude's audience would have known very well. A writing called the Assumption of Moses. And the illustration of Michael not contending with the devil. The main point behind that is that these people, these false teachers, they are arrogant and audacious. They are brash enough and full of themselves enough to do things that, according to legend, not even the archangel Michael would do. Not even he would say these types of things. And yet the false teachers do exactly that. So through their unbelief, through wickedness, through rebellion... Jude says these people have become no better than animals. We mentioned last week that the books of Jude and 2 Peter have some significant things in common. And there's a heartbreaking verse in 2 Peter that describes the state of these false teachers and describes the state of those who follow them. It's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. Peter says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. That verse is so heartbreaking because those who follow after false teachers, those people that we know, those people that we care about, those people that we love, they think they're free, but they're actually slaves. They think they're evolving, but they're actually devolving. They're becoming like every other idol worshiper we read about in Scripture. They become like what they worship. Because worshiping a false god, or pursuing your own sensuality, pursuing your own desires, perverting the grace of God in order to do so, that doesn't make you more free. It makes you less human. In the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end... The purpose, the whole point of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you're created for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But according to Jude, those who worship their own desires fail to live up to that purpose, fail to live up to that chief end, and heartbreakingly end up living more like animals. Kind of makes you think of what Paul says in Romans chapter one. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. Pursuing their passions, they give up the glory of the immortal God and end up like animals. It's a heartbreaking picture to imagine. So Jude says that those who do not believe, those who rebel against God, Those who commit great acts of wickedness and lead others to do the same will be judged. It was true of those Old Testament examples. And that's the fate awaiting the false teachers that Jude is confronting. So Jude warns them. And he warns his believers. Spot them. Avoid them. Don't be like them. Because they will be judged. And we do not want to be judged. Pick up in verse 11. 
Jude writes, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So Jude gives even more examples from the Old Testament of what or who these false teachers are like. He starts out with Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain didn't take God's word for it when he was warned about the sin crouching at his door. And as a result, Cain killed his brother, the first murder. Cain's guilty of disbelief, leading to disobedience. A lot like the Israelites in the wilderness. In Numbers chapters 22 through 31, a man named Balaam submits to God at first. But then he leads the Israelites to pursue their own sensual desires as opposed to God's law. The sin of wickedness. Kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah. And in number 16, Korah and his followers reject the authority that God gave Moses and Aaron. It's the sin of rebellion. Kind of like the fallen angels. With all these Old Testament examples, Jude has made it crystal clear that these false teachers are bad news. That's why they're to be spotted. That's why they're to be avoided. And if you don't spot them, If you don't avoid them, Jude says they will do great damage, kind of like a hidden reef does to the bottom of a ship. Because no matter how kind and compassionate these teachers might sound, no matter how wonderful their teaching might sound to your ears, no matter how revolutionary it might sound, Jude says these teachers aren't looking out for your best interest. They are like shepherds feeding themselves. They're not feeding you. He says the false teachers are like waterless clouds, helping you bear no fruit for God. They're like dead trees, bringing no harvest. They're like wild waves and wandering stars. You know, a good sailor can use the waves and use the stars to his advantage in the ancient world. You can use the waves and use the stars to navigate. But wild waves? Unpredictable? Wandering stars that won't stay put, they won't help you get home safely. That's why Peter says that these false teachers are spots and blemishes. He says they are waterless springs. In our world today, they could be compared to engineless cars, cell phones without batteries, shelters without roofs. They don't help you. They don't keep you safe. They don't fulfill their purpose. You might say they don't fulfill their chief end, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They do not fulfill their chief end of glorifying God, and they will not enjoy him forever. All those Old Testament stories, people guilty of disbelief, wickedness, rebellion, these false teachers and those who follow them are guilty of the same sins. In the words of author David Helm, What Jude is preaching is, beloved, hear me on this. These people who pervert the gospel, 
These church leaders who reject God's word, these preachers who are out for your money, these pastors who permit you to have both Jesus and sensuality, these upstarts who level any notion of church authority have already perished long ago. They died with Korah. These guys who were eating and drinking with you were those guys. So watch out. Be careful because their ways are deadly. It might sound harsh, but what Jude is getting at is that teachers like these, these certain people, don't truly care for you. They might even fool themselves into thinking that they care for you, that they're compassionate, that they're loving, but they really don't care. Because if they did actually care about you, they wouldn't lead you to pervert God's grace for the sake of your own desires. They would not lead you to reject Jesus as master and Lord. They would not lead you into hidden reefs. They wouldn't cause you to bear no fruit. They wouldn't get you lost on your way home if they actually cared. That's why teachers like these are to be spotted and avoided. Like the captain of a ship avoids that hidden reef. Because if you don't look out for them, your faith the faith that you're called to contend for will actually end up shipwrecked. Closing out the passage, Jude 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their undeeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Last week we mentioned the word ungodly. Four different times it occurs there. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. Verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. That sounds familiar from what we read earlier in the book. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Part of the good news here, as we mentioned last week, is that these teachers, these dangers, these threats come as no surprise to God. Jude uses another example from outside of the Bible to illustrate this, a book known as First Enoch. But the main point of the passage, as we mentioned last week, is that these ungodly teachers will be judged. They will be punished. That's the point that Jude has hit on over and over and over again in verses 5 through 16, because he wants to drill it home. Jude wants these people to know just how serious this matter is. He wants them to know that he's not playing around. His words are absolutely urgent. And you might even read these passages. You might even read these verses and think, man, Jude is kind of rough. Jude's kind of mean. He's kind of judgmental. He's kind of harsh towards these people. Well, to be honest, Jude's got nothing on Jesus. Look at how Jesus talks about those who would lead God's people astray. Matthew 18, starting in verse 5. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... 
It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You think Jude is harsh? That's Jesus talking. But Jude is saying the exact same thing. That those who lead God's people astray into false teaching and those who lead them astray into ungodliness, they are better off trying to swim with a boulder around their neck than having to stand and face God for the things they've said and for the things that they've done. If nothing else, words like that from Jesus himself make it clear that anyone in a position of teaching and authority when it comes to Christian doctrine ought to take our responsibility incredibly seriously. That includes people like me. That includes our elders. That includes our small group leaders. That even includes people who are teaching their children the Christian faith. How seriously should we take that? Incredibly seriously. But these false teachers haven't taken it seriously. And Jude makes it clear that they will be judged for their negligence, for leading these people astray. So like hidden reefs, the false teachers are to be spotted and avoided. Or else we are warned that we will end up being judged like them. Groups like the Israelites in the wilderness, the fallen angels, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, people like Cain and Balaam and Korah. But we need good teachers to help us do this, don't we? We need leaders who can help us navigate the choppy waters of discerning sound doctrine from good doctrine or rather sound doctrine from bad doctrine or poor doctrine. But the teachers that we're looking for are not human teachers. We're not looking for the greatest author or the greatest theologian or the greatest preacher or the greatest pastor or the greatest elder. Even those people can be imperfect. Even those people can make mistakes. Even those people can fall into false teaching. We need something better. And the good news is that we have something better. We have the best teachers that God could ever give us. And we see it hit on in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness, worldly passions, sound familiar? And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. According to Paul, we have the best teachers, and it's not Paul. It's not any human teacher. God's grace teaches us. We have Jesus as our teacher. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God teaching us. And all of those teachers, they are good teachers. They are good shepherds. Shepherds who have our best interests at heart rather than feeding themselves. Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. He's not the kind of shepherd who feeds himself. He's the kind of shepherd who gives up his life for the sake of the flock. These teachers teach us to bear fruit 
not ungodliness and sensuality. These are the kinds of teachers who guide us safely home, not guiding us into a shipwreck. And by relying on God's grace, by relying on the shepherd who gave himself up for us, for our purification, for our redemption, our blessed hope, by relying on him and the spirit and the word, and even on each other, we can learn to avoid hidden reefs. And we can make it into harbor safely. So this morning, as we wrap up, I encourage you, again, like we mentioned last week, educate yourself in the Christian faith. Rely on the word of God as your primary educator for good doctrine. Not the latest stuff you see shared on Facebook. Not the stuff that sounds nice. Not the stuff that makes you all fuzzy inside. Talk to Christian leaders who know the word better than you do. Pray and ask God to help you understand the faith in a more deep way. Look to those who love you. Those who have proven themselves to be good shepherds. Not shepherds feeding themselves, but shepherds who have your best interests at heart. Look to people who are bearing fruit in their own lives. Look to people who are godly. Ask questions. Read, study, get in a small group. Every single one of us wants to avoid false teaching. So I pray that we would do that together. That we would lean on each other, lean on the word, lean on God, lean on our Savior, Master, and Lord, Jesus Christ, and lean on the Holy Spirit that God has given us. We look forward to Christ returning, our blessed hope, so I pray that in the meantime, we would avoid all the pitfalls. We would avoid all the reefs that might try to wreck us. All those who might try to lead us astray. And that we might arrive safely home by the grace of God and by good, sound doctrine that builds us up and sanctifies us and grows us into a people for God's own possession. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's scary to consider that there is teaching out there that would lead us astray. That there are people out there who would lead us astray. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us knowledge to avoid those things. Again, there are so many different messages we receive. There are so many people who have different readings of Scripture, so many people who have different opinions, so many different philosophical ideas and spiritual ideas. And we see it all over the place. And it's hard to pick out the bones and, and keep the good stuff. So, Father, I pray that we would learn to lean on each other to do that, that we would lean on your word, that we would lean on your Holy Spirit. And that you would guide us into good, safe, sound, fruitful teaching. Father, again, we pray for our leaders. That you would give them wisdom. You'd give them discernment. You'd give them good health. And that you'd give them great humility as they prepare to begin serving our country. And ultimately reminding them that they will answer to you for how they conduct themselves. And Father, I pray for our church that as we leave here and go 
to different places, different responsibilities, different concerns, different worries, that we would look to your word for sound doctrine, that you would bind us to yourself, that you would keep us from wandering too far to the point of being led astray. Thank you for your son, again, our blessed hope, who offered himself once and for all for our redemption, for our purification, to form for you a people. And it is incredibly humbling to consider that we are your people. So, Father, I pray that you would continue to draw us closer to you and draw us further away from those things that would lead us astray, draw us further away from the false teaching that misrepresents you and misrepresents your word and misrepresents your desires for humanity. And I pray that we would get home safely once this journey is over. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to talk to one of our elders. They'd be happy to answer your questions, happy to pray with you, happy to talk with you about whatever it is that might be going on. And who knows, you might even be sitting here this morning and you've read something lately, you've seen something lately, and you didn't know if it was good teaching or not. You didn't know if it was false teaching or sound doctrine, and you're kind of wondering, and you don't know whether to believe it, whether to hold on to it. Talk to one of them about that. Even if we don't know the answer, we can direct you to someone who does. And we can do our best to keep all of us in good, sound, healthy teaching about who God is, who Christ is, and what Christ has done, guided by the Holy Spirit, and building up and growing together as a church. So talk to those guys as we sing this last song. We're grateful for your time this morning, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.